I'm Damian Bola, Director of News for the San Francisco Chronicle. Today on a special episode of Fifth and Mission, the story of a man with a very unusual job. He finds and retrieves dead bodies in lakes and rivers across the country. Keith Cormican has been especially successful in Lake Tahoe, where in just under two months in 2017, he found six missing bodies. Last fall, Cormican achieved what is believed to be the deepest recovery in North America when he recovered the body of a drowned man from a depth of 1,565 feet. To this day, he gets calls from distressed families all over the world who are hoping to find loved ones who have drowned and can't be found. Reporter Greg Thomas has his story. When a person contacts Keith Cormican, it means their loved one has died but can't be found. Keith is 65 years old and manages a dive shop in the small town of Black River Falls, Wisconsin. When he isn't managing the shop, he moonlights as a specialist in underwater dead body search and recovery. He works through his nonprofit organization, Bruce's Legacy. We offer our services for finding drowning victims uh, underwater. Losing a loved one is, of course, extremely difficult for family members. But when a person's body can't be found, when there's no trace of where they went or what exactly happened to them, it is psychological torture for grieving relatives. Oftentimes, mothers or fathers or siblings will find themselves concocting all kinds of hypothetical scenarios to cope with what happened. Maybe the person isn't actually dead. Maybe they were abducted. Maybe they ran away and don't want to be found at all. People's minds can spiral with these dark thoughts when they don't have answers. Keith's work offers them an opportunity for much-needed closure. Every parent's worst nightmare is losing a child. It will never feel real to me. That's Kelly Dalton, the mother of Taylor Lee Spink. Taylor drowned in a kayaking accident on Lake Michigan on September 5th, 2016. He was 21 years old. 682 days. 682 days and I finally received the phone call that I had longed for. that I had dreamt about night after night. Finally, I heard Keith's voice telling me he found my son. Our family would have, our family would have never felt peace without this incredible organization. Tyler would never have peace. I felt so much weight lifted off of me. It was as if I could finally breathe again. There are several reasons why Keith does this work. I'm a believer somebody's got to do it. In this episode, I'm going to refer to Keith by his first name, since I'll also be talking about his brother, Bruce. The creation of Bruce's legacy, Keith's nonprofit, is rooted in tragedy. Bruce was Keith's older brother. Back in Wisconsin 30 years ago, the two of them dreamed of creating a scuba dive team in their hometown to search for and recover drowning victims. For a few years, they volunteered to do it for their local fire department. Then in 1995, Bruce was attempting a dangerous search in a fast-flowing river. He was sucked underwater and he drowned. I feel that the lack of training has killed my brother. His brother's death 
left Keith feeling lost and racked with guilt. He knew he had to do something to pull himself out of it. So a year later, he opened his dive shop and convinced the local sheriff's department to sponsor an official dive team. He turned the shop into a hub for developing underwater search techniques. So my goal was to gain all the training I could possibly do and, and then uh, share that training to departments everywhere so they could gain that knowledge so they wouldn't have to deal with what our family had to deal with. Working in his shop, Keith learned more about how underwater searches work and started practicing with sonar devices, which use sound to create a digital picture of the bottom of a body of water in the places that scuba divers can't reach. They produce just amazing images you can, you know, to help you locate uh, drowning victims. He practiced constantly and saved up his money. Those devices, uh, when I first started, you know, the, the first one we bought was around $35,000 for the, the sonar alone. Um, now you got to have a boat and then you need some electronics for that. And so I had set aside $70,000 and that's what I used to uh, get Bruce's Legacy started the very first year. In 2013, Keith launched Bruce's Legacy and began offering to help on drowning cases around the country. He didn't have to promote the organization at all. People started finding him and reaching out for help almost immediately. Keith is a stout Midwesterner with a round face, gray mustache, and glacier blue eyes. He's conducted more than 125 search missions around the world and recovered 32 drowning victims. He's traveled all over the U.S. and as far away as the Nepalese Himalayas. He's essentially the last resort when law enforcement agencies can't find a person. I've done a lot of searches that most people would even try to attempt. And that's part of what's made me successful is because uh, I do, you know, I, I used to not be able to say no to anybody. And I, I would go and uh, work cases that, you know, some of them were very old cases, some are in rivers that there's probably no chance at all. But we, we've done them anyway. And, uh, and we, you know, if we haven't found them, we've, we've always, we're always learning. In more than two decades on the job, Keith has encountered murder victims, suicides, and corpses in various states of decomposition and decay. By far, you know, I would say the accidental drownings are probably the most common one that we work. Then definitely the second most common are going to be uh, suicides. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that are find ways to, you know, jump off bridges and things like that, that we are more than willing to come and help the families look for their loved ones in those circumstances. And then, of course, uh, murder cases. 2017 was the year that Bruce's legacy became known around the country. Yeah, two, 2017 was um, an extremely busy year for us. Because in 2017, we recovered a total of nine drowning victims. Six of those cases were in the Lake Tahoe area. In July of that year, Keith recovered the body of an 11-year-old boy who'd drowned in a kayaking accident on Stampede Reservoir, just north of Tahoe. After several agencies searched for the boy but couldn't find him, Keith went and located him in just a few days. While he was in the area, the family of a missing man named Mark Ma reached out to him. Ma was a 20-year-old college student from Reno who'd drowned the year before while paddleboarding with friends off Lake Tahoe's west shore. But even though authorities had mobilized a massive search, no one could find him. I was very familiar with the case of uh, Mark Ma, um, just because of all the, the connections and, and uh, social media that we have available to us. Authorities had long since called off the search for Ma. But a year later, he was still missing. Keith was the family's last hope. 
I did a lot of research about Lake Tahoe and found that that Lake Tahoe is an extremely difficult lake to search because of its bottom composition is so uneven and very rocky. And um, for sonar searching, it's, it's just very, very difficult. I, I, I didn't hesitate and, and you know, uh, said I would go out and at least try. And uh, lo and behold, on day three, we, we ended up uh, locating Mark Ma in 250 feet of water. Keith passed along the precise GPS coordinates of the body's location to authorities who then went and recovered it. Keith says there isn't always a correlation between how long a body's been in the water and how well-preserved it is, but in Lake Tahoe, the cold water is known to preserve sunken corpses. In this case, after 14 months, Mark Ma's body emerged pretty much intact. Suddenly, Keith found himself in the local spotlight. You know, we found him in the late morning that morning, and uh, and the news media got a hold of that. And that evening, we had about uh, we had seven TV news channels came and uh, were actually lined up to uh, interview us. And then the bad part about that it was the next day and a half uh, I spent on the phone with family members. I had over twenty family members that had reached out to me and asked if I could uh, search for their loved one. Keith has found victims that have been in the water for as long as 16 years. But some of the new calls he was getting were about cases more than 20 years old. And a lot of these drownings happened in rivers, which Keith says are the hardest places to find people because the currents carry bodies away. That was probably you know, one of the memories I'll never forget because that day and a half was extremely stressful talking to family members that you just knew that most of them, they, there was no, no hope in the world that they were probably ever going to find their loved one. After locating Mark Ma, Keith took on the case of Dan Pham. Pham was a 41-year-old kayaker from San Leandro who had disappeared while paddling alone on Lake Tahoe in the same area where Mark Ma drowned. By that point, Pham had been missing for two months. By surprise to us, we, we located him in about five hours, and he was in 250 feet of water. Keith set aside two weeks to search for Dan Pham, but he found him so quickly that he had extra time in the Tahoe area. He asked a local detective whether there were any cold cases he might look into. That took him to Fallen Leaf, a small alpine lake adjacent to Tahoe, to look for two missing people, 21-year-old David Ward and his mother, Cynthia Ellis, both of whom had drowned there separately many years earlier. So he he had been missing for 20 years and uh, in a fishing accident up there, him and his buddy uh, capsized in a canoe, and he he went missing. And then it wasn't until four years later, his mother um, uh, was having some, you know, some issues. And she left a suicide note in her vehicle up at that location and, uh, and went missing. After a brief sonar scan from his boat, Keith spotted a decaying corpse that turned out to be Cynthia Ellis's. The next morning, he returned to look for her son, David Ward. We spent about another two or three days um, on the lake there trying to locate the son. We have actually been back to that lake a total of four times in different different times over the years here now trying to find the, the son. But in the, but in the process of that, that's where we ended up finding the gentleman from Florida. Keith's sonar picked up a badly decomposed body about 200 feet down with its legs entangled in a boat anchor line. He thought he'd found David Ward, but an autopsy later determined it was the body of a 71-year-old man from Florida named Michael Whalen, who'd gone missing at Fallen Leaf in 2004. It came as a surprise because no one was even looking for him there. Lakes have been a very popular place to dispose of people that you never want found, or if you don't want to be found, um, it's a great place to do that. But 
you know, with today's technology, that's that's going to change, uh, especially when we're finding them 14 to 16 years later. By that point, Keith had found six bodies in the Tahoe area in the span of about two months. But authorities say there are surely more bodies at the bottom of the lake that no one will ever know about. We'll be right back on Fifth and Mission. You can read Greg Thomas's story about Keith Cormican and Bruce's legacy at sfchronicle.com or on the Chronicles app. Keith Cormican's success during his Lake Tahoe trip in 2017 triggered a surge of new requests. They came in from Alaska, from British Columbia, and from the East Coast, too. Today, he gets dozens of inquiries a year and spends two to three months a year traveling the country in an RV, working on cases. On August 12th, 2020, Keith received a desperate email from a woman in New Jersey named Haley Normoyle. She was reaching out on behalf of her brother, Ryan. During a three-week vacation to California, Ryan Normoyle paid a visit to Lake Tahoe. Ryan, a 29-year-old woodworker, had rented a boat one afternoon in August in South Lake Tahoe and motored out onto the lake. At one point that afternoon, he jumped into the chilly water for a dip, but he accidentally left the boat's motor in gear. The boat moved away from him, and he couldn't swim fast enough to catch up to it. When Haley Normoyle reached out to Keith, he was in Alberta, Canada, searching for a young man who had drowned at Lake Minnewanka the year before. Because I was on that search up there, there was nothing I could do, and I was confident that, that Washoe and uh, Douglas County would be working it. By late August, without any promising updates, the Normoyle family had become distressed. Authorities typically pull their patrol boats from Lake Tahoe after Labor Day, when tourism dies down and weather conditions worsen. So the window on the search for Ryan was closing. The family was very heartbroken over all that. The big hurdle I had with this case, you know, I've got remote operated vehicles. I got two of them now and, and I've got that sonar, the towfish sonar, but neither one of them could go to that 15 to 1600 feet that they said that they were searching in. So I was, you know, my equipment was not going to do the job. I, I would have had to spend thirty-five dollars to $40,000 to get um, my ROV to go to that depth. So that wasn't a great option. But by mid-September, the pieces began to fall into place. Local authorities had shifted their attention to other issues around the lake, but they agreed to provide Keith with the high-tech search equipment he needed, including a search boat, three crew members, and an ROV. That's a remote-operated vehicle, which is essentially an underwater drone, outfitted with a video camera and a mechanical claw used to retrieve objects, including bodies. Keith uses it in all of his recoveries. The Normoyles raised more than $40,000 to search for Ryan on GoFundMe, and part of that would help pay for Keith's travel and lodging in Tahoe. Um, the problem I had is you know, when I first started, I, I had worked some cases where I was relied on other people, you know, their hours their equipment, and um, and I always found that to be always an issue sometimes because um, their hours are different than my hours. When Keith takes a case, he typically works sunup to sundown without breaks. This time, the help would only be available for four days, and Keith was worried that wouldn't be enough. But he and his crew set out anyway. The first day on the lake was windy. Sonar scans didn't produce any promising targets on the lake floor. So we end up having to come off the lake only, you know, putting in, um, <clears throat> you know, a few hours and uh, everything was working good that day. So we came back on day two and on day two, right away in the morning, the uh, we started having some problems with the ROV was losing power 
to run the motors, but yet we had lights and camera and sonar. Keith and the crew spent most of the morning trying to fix that problem. We, we brought it up a couple of times and, uh, and to bring that thing up, it, it took a lot of manpower, uh, a lot of you know, physical exertion on the, the small crew that we had. And we tried different things and uh, finally we tried something. I just kind of didn't really, didn't have much faith in it, but uh, it was a beautiful day. The, the, the weather was looking to cooperate all day. With the weather cooperating, Keith decided to try something he didn't think had ever been done. He sent the ROV all the way to the bottom of the lake. And then uh, we just towed it, you know, maybe 50, 60 feet, and it would bring it up off the bottom, and then we'd stop, and then we'd settle back down. And we were getting sonar images. And lo and behold, uh, after about a few hours of doing that, uh, we were able to get a sonar image of uh, what we knew was a, a body. It was the body of Ryan Normoyle. Locating a body is often the toughest and most technical part of Keith's work. But in this case, retrieval was going to be the big challenge. Ryan Normoyle's body was resting at a depth of 1,540 feet, the deepest place Keith had ever encountered. On the third day of the search, Keith and his team went to deploy the ROV to inspect the body, then, using its gripper, lift it off the lake bed and tow it to the surface. The ROV is powered by a thick electric cable, Keith's crew had to link two of them together to create a 1,700-foot-long power cord that could reach the bottom of the lake. But at that length, the cable couldn't deliver enough power, and the ROV's propulsion system was constantly cutting out. After several tries, Keith was able to clamp the ROV's gripper around Ryan's wrist. So we, yeah, we were able to grab a hold of him um, and try to bring him up. Uh, I've never, out of all the bodies I brought up with that ROV, I've never had one drop away. And for many reasons, I mean, this, we couldn't get Brian, uh, Ryan very far off the bottom before he would uh, break away from the ROV. So we ended up trying different things that day there. Um, and we ended up having to leave him there. And that, that was a, that was tough. That was extremely tough because I knew the family was in town. Uh, both the parents had flown out. Keith says he always lets families know the progress of his search at the end of the day, however hard the news might be. I told them that on the way back in that night that we did find Ryan and that we're working on now. We gotta, we're having troubles getting him up, but we're going to you know, keep at it until we get it done. So... So I can only imagine that, you know, just knowing that he was found was a relief for him. I figured I think maybe they could sleep a little better that night. On the fourth day, the final day of the search, after tweaking the gripper and swapping in a new power cable, the crew returned to the middle of the lake to try again. The pressure was on. And as we're driving across the lake, all the other mornings, the lake had been pretty calm in the morning. But on this day, the, the winds were rough. It was a rough ride all the way out there. It was about a half hour, 45 minute ride out. And the winds were pretty going to be pretty constant all day. And so we went ahead and um, we got out to the search area and it's like, oh man, this, this, is, this is not good. The waves were already two to three feet and the forecast wasn't encouraging. But Keith had only one more day of help. His flight home was scheduled for the next day. He had to try. So anyway, we went back into um, trying a couple of, you know, things that I've never done before and, uh, you know, rigging up a little lasso. The lasso idea didn't work 
first thing out. But the second plan B was um, I had uh, put some uh, things that would help grip the gripper arm better. And so we we grabbed, grabbed hold of Ryan's arm again. And um, now this time we were able to get him up off the bottom further than we ever had. And we, we started bringing him up and we got him to 580 feet with the waves bouncing pretty bad. And I watched him, you know, the whole time while these guys were pulling on the cable nice and slow. And finally at 580 feet, he, he broke loose again. Keith was frustrated. The three crew members were baffled. Keith had never experienced anything like this before. And then I was about this time I was completely burnt out. I I I was just I, I was physically drained, and I just said, you know, you guys, this is what we need to do. I'm gonna let you guys figure it out. And I w- went back down into the boat uh, and got some stuff ready down inside, and and let them guys uh, put their minds together. And lo and behold, uh, they came up with a lasso that uh, did allow me to take that down on that next dive. And, uh, and I was able to work that around Ryan's arm and up by his elbow. I was able to pull it tight enough to uh, get it to stay. And that is how we got Ryan up. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, it was late, late on the fourth day when uh, we got that to happen. So that was pretty amazing. It took two hours of hauling before Ryan Normoyle's body appeared on the surface of the lake. Then two county scuba divers dropped into the water and slid the body into a mesh bag, then hauled it aboard a county boat. Keith gave Ryan Normoyle's family the news. Before she had proof that her son had died, Mary Normoyle, Ryan's mother, had struggled to reconcile his disappearance. Now, with his body recovered, her family could begin to heal. I asked how he handles the pressure of working with families who depend on him to deliver this emotional closure. Well, I can tell you it's not easy. Um, I have, you know, I, I'm not an easy person to probably live with. Uh, some people will tell you it's it's, it's horribly stressing, stressful. I don't know how to explain it. I can tell you, yeah, I feel uh, the stress from it um, because when we come in, you know, these families have high hopes. Keith mentioned the case he'd been working on before the Ryan Normoyle recovery the one in Alberta, Canada, in which a family had asked him to find their son. And we spent 17 days, consecutive days, on that lake up there looking for their son with them on the lake as well with their boat and giving us, you know, any, every support that we needed. Uh, we ate supper with them at night. And uh, in the mornings, we'd, you know, would see them off. Uh, they would see us off um, leaving the campsite every morning. And so we got to know the family and seen how, you know, how desperate they were to get their son back. And uh, we stayed longer than what we had uh, had originally told them we would because we, we just really wanted to find them. And after 17 days, we finally had to come to the conclusion that we, you know, at this point, we could not find them. As exhausting as the work can be, Keith says this is the hardest thing. Uh, you know, we spend 12, 14 hour days out there and we are you know, physically drained, but to have to be able to tell the families that we cannot find them at this point uh, and have to leave them with that is, is always the hardest uh, emotionally and physically uh, draining thing to have to deal with. How we deal with it, I don't, you know, I don't know. I, um, <laughs> I, I can probably tell you a handful of people that can, can uh, have a conversation with and, and tell them, tell them what I'm like uh, to be around sometimes. Cause it's, 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 it's very stressful work that we do. So uh, I'm pretty demanding and uh, you know, we'll work very hard to, to do what we can do to, to hopefully find that re- resolution. 
Keith knows his days doing this work are limited. Three years ago, he suffered a heart attack, which he attributes to his lifestyle of putting in long days on lakes, sleeping in cheap motels, and not eating well. Still, he doesn't plan on stopping anytime soon. I'm not that type of person. I guess he can sit on a fishing bank and fish for retirement. But uh, so I, I plan on doing this until I can, you know, physically not do it anymore. I've set up some training um, so I can train departments and uh, and share share this knowledge as much as possible, in high hopes that you know, we can get more people trained. And, um, and that's where a lot of these departments, they buy the equipment and they let us sit on shelves until they need it. And then they don't know how to use it. Um, so if we can drive home the importance of getting out there, get the tr right training, and then, um, you know, get started with that at least. So I'm, that's what I'm hoping for is to get some more people trained because, you know, I can't cover it all. Using Keith's techniques, Tahoe authorities have recovered several drowning victims the past two years. Keith says he'll know to take a break when the phone stops ringing, but it never does. There are always more missing people, more bodies unaccounted for, more distressed families desperate for answers. People like Kelly Dalton, who you heard from at the beginning of this episode. Her son, Taylor Lee Spink, drowned in Lake Michigan five years ago. Closure is just a word. Unfortunately, many families are not given, but Keith and his team have a gift. They have graciously given their heart and soul into helping families receive closure. For almost two years, I was stuck on September 5th, 2016, until on July 19th. 2018, Bruce's legacy gave me one incredible gift. My son. For Fifth and Mission, I'm Greg Thomas. Bruce's Legacy is a volunteer organization that relies on donations. If you'd like to help, you can go to bruceslegacy.com and click Donate. Thanks to Greg Thomas, whose story about Keith Cormican and Bruce's legacy can be found at sfchronicle.com or on the Chronicle app. Thanks also to Erica Carlos for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.